Please hold for Armchair Adventurer. That's not the kind I'm of podcast now. we Same. are. The mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages Four, at this time. Goodbye. Three, two. That was better. Okay, yeah, I'll fix it in post <laughs> if anything's wrong. Yeah, that's the, honestly the hardest part about this whole thing. That's what we need Paul for, man. Yeah. <laughs> He's just... Something about him is just unifying on the clap. Obviously, I was expecting the Carnegie episode to be the next one released, but yeah. uh, we're going to need to take another week. Paul's uh, still getting settled. It's still the holidays. I don't know what Greg's up to, so yeah. it's a little... Uh, Another armchair classico, just Dan and oh, I. Oh yeah, that's right. Back to the golden days. Love the classico, yeah. The yeah. five episodes before Paul joined. Was it even that? <clears throat> oh yeah. Are you kidding me? It was like fifteen or sixteen. Oh shit. Because we, t- we, I think we took, we did a stretch of them. We took time off. We started back up, and then it was after. It was like three or so into starting back up that we got Paul in. You're right. What episode did he join? Um, you know, I will look it up right now. Nice. This will be our 45th episode. Wow. Not bad. Has it been a year since we started this? More. Oh. So we missed that uh, let one. Let me see. <laughs> I guess podcasts the Georgia Guidestones don't really count was... in, ep- in years, though. They count in episodes. Right. Georgia Guidestones went up June 17th, 2019. Oh, yeah. The 13th episode Pretty is when good. Paul joined. Pretty good. What was it? Numbers Stations. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was the first one he was in. Nice. <clears throat> Greg wasn't that long after, was he? Greg was two... Ep- there were two episodes, and then Jonestown was when Greg was wow. initially a guest on, and then just... <laughs> Stuck around. Yeah, yeah. we were like, we're going to work through our entire friend group one at a time. Yeah. And then we just added Greg, and then that was no, it. No, I'm, I'm, I'm glad Greg's here, because Greg adds a lot, like literally a lot of content to oh, yeah. the episodes. So. Yeah. We really, like, our length, I think, is ideal for the typical episode. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, it's like an hour is like the gold standard for podcast it seems like yeah yeah i get really excited when i see that we have like an hour and five raw I'm like booyah sometimes well i feel like lately it's been it's been more even like yeah the, the magnet ones have been like an hour and 20 haven't they mm-hmm. yeah yeah because we because those i mean potentially could be split into two yeah true yeah so um i feel like there was something i wanted to mention but I'm also clipping my toenails right now, which I should have done before we started this. But That's amazing. The audacity. Does your event have that a was, name? Uh, yeah, the Tenerife Airport disaster. Oh, okay. Yeah, mine did, uh, surprisingly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, what did you call it in the message? The Buffalo boating spree boat crash spree yeah i refined it a little bit i have a better one okay the buffalo uh, before bonanza we... oh there we go hey yeah, yeah all right i really want to try to think of what i wanted to say to you it was something that's going on in the world but not the obvious thing 
Yeah. Which I don't think anybody really needs to hear our opinion on. Nope. Um, <clears throat> well, who knows? Yeah. I do that a lot where I'll, I'll think of something I want to say at the top of the episode, and then I always forget it. Mm. I just get right into the mindset of the episode. I think, I think people, people like the five minutes of banter. I think it's like a warm-up for us and a warm-up for their ears. Yeah, certainly. Well, <laughs> if I think of it, I'll rudely interrupt you and stop. Yeah. I expect it, minute 38. Yeah. <clears throat> um, what'd you eat for dinner? Have you had dinner yet? Yeah, I had uh, some pulled pork sandwiches. Hell yeah. Yep. Love that. Oh, yeah. What about you? I made some, in no, no particular like recipe I thought I just made what I'm going to call Chinese food. Nice. I had like uh, beef that was cut for like stew meat, mm -hmm. and then I just cut it up a little finer and uh, threw some broccoli in there. Nice. Some Szechuan sauce, put it over rice. It was actually really good. Ooh, yeah. I ate far more of it than I needed to, though, <laughs> as is often the case. Yeah. Well, that's, that's that um, genre of food's specialty. I mean, yeah, eating way more than you need to and receiving yeah. way more than you need to eat. True. True. Well, it, it helps that their, uh, like, carb is rice because that's, like, yeah. super cheap and they can just throw it at you. you yeah. Know? Yeah. Hoisin sauce is good. You a fan of that? Yeah. Mixed with a little sriracha. Oh, hey. I should have got some of that. I should have. I see where I where I messed up was the sauce. The sauce was mm. the weakest part because I just got like a bottled, you know, like not like PF Chang's, but some sort of, you know. Yeah. And it it it, it is it was the weakest link in all that. Mm. I'll say that much. That really tanks a dish sometimes when the sauce isn't uh -huh. right. It's just yeah, ugh. Yeah. Injustica. <laughs> oh well, here's one thing I will say about mine. Uh, my story today. Because, well, <clears throat> perhaps we should at least address what we're doing. I Dan guess. and I have two unrelated topics, related thematically in the sense that you describe them as life-size Rube Goldberg-type catastrophes, I believe. Yeah, yep. Just where enough things go wrong that it ends uh, poorly. Very However, sequentially, too. Yes, yes. Um, mine is a bit more severe than Dan's. Yep. If we talk injury toll, Dan, what do you have, two injured? Yeah, something like that. And I've got like 500 dead, so. Oh, my God. Closer to 600, really, but that's, we'll save that. There is also just an absolutely stunning fact in my story. I won't make it wait long because it's one of the first things I'm going to say, but uh, do you think you're ready to just rip right into yours? Oh, yeah. Yep. So I typed this thing up, and it's pretty seamless. I included two interactive points. But I'm telling you, Kane, if you have a question or if something to say, you better be assertive. Okay, because you, you really laid yours out. This is as so smooth as I've to... ever done it. Okay. Well, <laughs> typed it. We'll see if I do it as smoothly as I typed it. So now you're saying you've typed out literally exactly what you're going to say. Yeah, I got my script right here. Incredible. Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Might sound robotic. Yeah. So you get to the <laughs> Buffalo Bonanza. 
On the evening of January 21st, 1959, a disaster struck Buffalo, New York, which caused millions of dollars in damage and led to a very confusing lawsuit regarding who was at fault. That's really the key here. Whose fault was this? Ships along the Buffalo River were totaled, a massive steel bridge, as well as a grain elevator were wiped out, debris riddled the frozen river for weeks, freezing water flooded almost 20 blocks of the city, hundreds of people were displaced from their home, and somehow zero deaths. Okay. Questions before we begin? None so far. All right. Well, that was your one opportunity that I'm providing, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> one of the two, I mean. Our story begins aboard the McGilvery Shearus. McGilvery Shears. Yeah, okay. A freighter mm-hmm. that was moored for the winter in Buffalo, New York. Now, the winter, 1958 into 1959, had been an especially brutal one. And if you've ever experienced any winter in western New York, you know exactly what those can be like. I think... Are we, are we talking cold temperatures, a lot of snow? All of the above, yeah. Okay, high like, winds, possibly. High winds, yeah. I remember hearing, like, every time we had a snow day in Albany, it would be like, and 10-foot snow drifts in Buffalo, New York. Oh, yeah. okay. Like, the scenes where you see roads that are plowed or, like, cut out, and, like, the wall of snow is higher than the cars driving along them. Right. That's okay. usually is, Buffalo. Sorry, and I know very little about New York geography. Is Buffalo on or near a lake? Yeah, it's, like, mostly... Oh, God. I should have Googled Hey, that's this. all I needed. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Ontario slash Erie. Okay. On this day, January 21st, the temperatures, however, were unseasonably warm. So all of the ice and snow that had built up over the winter started to break off and flowing down the river bit by bit. Mm. Now, the McGilvery Shearus was moored in a way that basically caught a lot of the snow and ice between the ship hull and the riverbank. So it was like at an angle. So it's like it was catching all of this snow and ice and just like lodging it there. I'm with you. Yeah. And it caused this immense amount of buildup and it was pressing against the ship and unsurprisingly the ship's moorings began to snap one by one. Now apparently this took like an hour for them all to snap. Eventually they all did. The one man on board whose job it was to respond to emergencies, he made one (laughs) terrible and crucial mistake. As he saw these moorings start to snap, basically at that point your move is to get ready with the anchors on the ship because it's not like you can retie the moorings, right? Mm. You just got to get ready to like drop the anchors and catch it before it gets too out of hand. He forgot to release what are called the devil's claws, which (laughs) if you think about a gun, right, it has a safety that you have to click before you can shoot it. The anchors kind of had a similar mechanism. Mm, So you had to like release the devil's claws. And then when you hit the anchor thing, they could actually drop. 
So then did he think he had deployed the anchors but hadn't? I'm guessing. I could not find, like, any testimony, you know, for as studied as this is, as, like, a legal issue, I couldn't find anything that he said about what was going on. Okay. So he failed to release the Devil's Claws, and when the final mooring snapped, he went and he hit the anchor release, but basically the safety caught it. And when the safety, when these claws catch the anchor, you cannot get that thing free. You basically need a crane to, like, lift it back so you can unhook the devil's claws. Bummer. Yeah, so he's on this ship. I'm assuming he got off somehow because what I'm about to describe to you, I cannot imagine any human being surviving. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Like, I, I just assume he got off. So here we have the McGilvery Shearus. It is the first moving piece in this great Rube Goldberg machine. And within three minutes of this occurring, the city was made aware of the incident. It's a pretty good response time. That's great response time. Considering it was 1959. I guess, you know, somebody's around. I don't know. So a few hundred yards down the Buffalo River from where this first ship is, a young crewman aboard the Michael K. Tewksbury, which is another freighter, uh, was cold, shivering, and daydreaming about his mistress. I can only assume. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was the 50s. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, Now, his job was to man the ship, just like the other guys, Man the ship in case something happened, uh, but obviously nothing ever happened. You'd never expect something like this to go down. So naturally, he left his post to go pay a visit. He actually went and visited a mistress from his post. So 20 minutes after... Oh, the f- oh yeah, that, was, that part was real. Okay. Yeah, I can only assume he was daydreaming, but his actions, you know... So 20 minutes after the first ship broke off, right, and ripped away from its moorings, Mm -hmm. it came twisting down the river. And when I say twisting, I'm being very literal. The Buffalo River is like a a serpent zigzag. Uh, And somehow this huge ship that's like 150 yards long made its way through that whole maze. (laughs) Like a cartoon. Yeah, probably, probably, you know, smashing into like a bowling ball with bumpers. Like, (laughs) yeah, okay. So, this first ship, the McGilvery, smashes into the Tewksbury, ship number two, which almost immediately snapped all of its moorings. So, I like to mention the guy with the mistress, but if you think about it, what could he really have done? Mm -hmm. You know, your ship gets hit by another ship. Yeah, say yeah. la vie, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so now what we have is two of these freighters, again about the size of a football field, cruising down the river with no human beings on them. So, Kane, I have a multiple choice question for you. Love it. And your answer to this question is going to be your prediction on what the two ships collide into next. Okay. So do the ships collide into A, 
a grain elevator. B, another ship. C, a bridge. Or D, an apartment building. I think, uh, I don't want to use the word funniest, but I think it's going to be funnier if we get a third ship involved. (laughs) So that's my guess. You got it. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. These two ships unhook an entirely other ship, uh, another freighting ship, from its own moorings. And again, I couldn't find anything on whether or not there was a human being on board this third ship, but I'm going to assume there wasn't because nobody died. Oh, that's weird because third time's the harm. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) (sighs) All right, we're back from our hour hiatus from recording because that's how long (laughs) I needed to recover (laughs) from that bullshit. (laughs) So the three ships um, actually passed underneath one bridge. Uh, So that bridge escaped unscathed. The reason being it had actually been raised for the winter. So it oh, was nice. like, okay. yeah, clear, cleared the top of the three ships. However, a little bit further down the river was the Michigan Avenue bridge, and it was in the lowered position. So about 25 minutes have passed at this point, and the city is frantically, frantically trying to contact the bridge operators of the Michigan Avenue bridge. Ring, 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 click, nobody's home. Nobody answered the phone at the Michigan Ave Bridge, uh, I don't know, office. Bridge house? Bridge house. The two operators, you want to guess where they were? Um, pissing off the side of the bridge. <laughs> if it was you and me, yes. However, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They were at a bar down the street called no. the Swanee House an hour before their shift was over for Come a quick on. drink. <laughs> the, the one half hour where they had to be there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really the one five minutes, because that's what it boils down to. Okay. So they're at the bar. They're throwing back a lager. And fortunately... The city is filled with the sounds of these steel ships just smashing and grinding together. Everybody knows what's going on, or everybody knows something's going on. So these two are like, okay, we should probably get back to work when things sound like that. You know, we operate a steel bridge. That sounds like steel. They're sweating a little, I'm sure. That'd be a quick jog back to the bridge. Yeah, yeah, sober up real fast. So they get <laughs> they get back to the bridge, and they start the process to raise the bridge. Unfortunately, it takes two minutes for the bridge to raise completely up, and they did not have two minutes. So all three ships, spearheaded by the Tewksbury, the second ship actually ended up leading the way, smashed into the bridge, Michigan Avenue Bridge. The south tower of the bridge collapsed into the river, and between that and the ships, the river was basically completely dammed. They just 
stuck <laughs> and froze right there. And water and ice started to build. And for the next, uh, for the rest of the night and into the next day, water and ice flowed over the banks of the river into the city, completely flooding almost 20 blocks and displacing several oh hundred people God. from their home. Oh, these two jackasses <laughs> must, have, must have felt so stupid. Can you imagine? Well, first of all, I don't know how they got out of the bridge in time not to die when it collapsed. But can mm. you just imagine them standing on that riverbank like, oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You had to tell your cousin to meet us at the bar. That was a big deal. It all, and it all unfolded in like half an hour. The biggest, you know, just... It's quite a nightmare. Ridiculous series of events. So all in all, the damage spanned about three miles of the Buffalo River, uh, like along the river, and resulted in over $30 million in legal claims. 1959. Yeah. So that's non-adjusted? Non-adjusted. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, besides just the sheer ridiculousness of this event, the legal ramifications are also quite famous, famous in the legal world. The reason that I even heard about this is because Chelsea actually studied it in one of her classes because of, I believe, because of the precedent it set in the court, uh, in the court case. So, do you want to hear about the the legal stuff? Do you think that would find a home here? Yeah, uh, it's very. Brief. I think if you don't get yeah, if you don't get professorial about it, I think we'd be fine. Okay, yeah. Thirty minutes later. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the main issue was that the court had to figure out was so like the first ship obviously did something wrong, right? The yeah. the one guy on the ship. First of all, they had it moored pro- improperly. That's why it was able to catch all that ice. The guy on the ship made terrible mistakes. Like, the, basically, they ne- they committed like a neglect, right? Or uh, uh, yeah, they breached okay. their duty of care. And there is a foreseeable amount of injury from what they neglected to do. The question was, all of the other stuff that happened... Does it matter if it was foreseeable or predictable in order to be responsible for it, right? Okay. Because who could predict, oh, a ship comes loose, crashes into another ship. You're probably going to have to pay for that ship, right? Who would predict you'd also knock down a bridge and flood a town? Right. So the court said yes. Too bad, so sad. You are responsible whether or not those events were foreseeable. Now, technically, um, the first, the company that owned the first ship, the company that owned the dock where the first ship was, the company that owned the second ship, and the city were all sued. But who do you think was actually held liable? Are the bridge employees uh, employees of the city, presumably? Yes. That's a good question. I feel like I want it to be them, but it's probably not going to be. 
Okay, so ideal world, it's the bridge folk. I mean, they they were they were drunk. Yeah, you know. I mean, <laughs> even though you can't predict, do you think did they have enough time? If they hadn't, if they had received the city's calls, would they have the bridge cleared in time? Yeah, because it only took two minutes. True. Okay. But they did have to find them in a bar in order to get the message to right. them. You know. <laughs> um. So. I guess I want it to be them. I'm going to say honest answer, the anchor man. The first guy? Yeah. Yeah. So you're partially correct. The first ship, first ship's company, the dock where the first ship was, that company, and the city were all held liable. The only entity that got off was the company that owned the second ship. Okay, that's yeah. fair. So, I, yeah. I have no, no problems with that. Yeah, it seems like, it, you know, you, who expects a ship to ram your ship Yeah, on a river, you know? Well, the Halifax explosion, those guys. Yeah. That sucked, but. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Uh, so that's it. That's the Buffalo okay. Bonanza, man. How, uh, yeah. like, I can't wait to hear yours. I know nothing about Kane's story that he picked but uh, I, I didn't even heard of it before i found this i'm, I'm excited Which not about crazy. the deaths but right you know i know i really i'm gonna have to <laughs> measure out how i talk about this because it's like <laughs> exciting but of course tr- horrifically tragic yeah well the i think you just you did the one thing that you have to do you made a disclaimer okay now, now you can do whatever you want all right <laughs> Uh, let's get ready for some slander. Um, I do have, I, I want to say as a second disclaimer, I have a transcript of communications between the two planes and the tower. It might come out a little weird because there's several people talking and it's more than just two. So I didn't, I didn't want to like just have you be the other person. Oh uh, yeah. So it might get a little clunky, but it's really not that long. All right. But if you've no idea. Even I said Tenerife at the beginning. This is the Tenerife airport disaster. And this was on March 27th, 1977. The deadliest ever aviation disaster, if you don't count 9-11. And this is two planes, Pan Am Flight 1736 and KLM Flight 4805. And they collided basically head-on on the runway. Oh. Killing almost everyone. Ugh. So how does this happen? Wait, right? wait, wait, wait. Did you say where this airport was? And I already missed no, it. No, not okay. yet. First, I'm going to talk about the two flights. Just give passenger numbers, crew, all that. And this is where that fact I mentioned earlier is going to come in. Okay. And that's in this very first Pan Am flight 1736. This was a plane that was, it actually had a name. It was called the Clipper Victor. Or Clipper Victor, I guess, because it was a Clipper ship. Mm. Clipper plane, I suppose. And it has quite a storied history (laughs) culminating in this disaster. This exact plane was not only the first commercially flown 747 with, like, an established route. It was also the first 747 to be hijacked. When a... It was flying from JFK Airport to... Puerto Rico, and it was hijacked and taken to Cuba. 
Oh no. And that was just like a year or two after it started. And then, and so that, that inaugural flight was in 1970, just like two years after gets hijacked five years later, this whole fiasco. God, can I add something real quick that I didn't realize until, so this, this was a very uh, surprisingly popular thing to do was to hijack a plane and fly it to Cuba. Really? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, expand on that. Uh, it's it's kind of kind of spotty what I remember, but basically, this just isn't the first time you've heard of this. Well, no it it was it was just like I remember hearing that it was a thing because if you were trying to like go to Cuba to live there, you know, like get out of the U.S., go to Cuba, you, like it wasn't easy, and so. Uh, but the Cuban government would pay you for a plane if you, <laughs> if you hijacked. Or, or okay. like the U.S. would pay a ransom. You know, it would be like right on, a guaranteed yeah. chunk of cash, and then you could live in Cuba. Cool. So this Pan Am flight originated in Los Angeles. It had a layover in New York City. And this is where the crew changed over and 14 new passengers got on. So now we're totaling 380 passengers including two children. And the new crew on board is Captain Victor Grubbs, First Officer Robert Bragg, Flight Engineer George Warns, as well as 13 flight attendants. The other flight, KLM Flight 4805, was a charter flight for Holland International Travel Group coming from Amsterdam Airport, Sheepfall. Sheepfall. It had 235 passengers, including 52 children. Ah. And the crew was Captain Jacob Veldhuizen Van Zanten, <laughs> who is actually, at this time, the most experienced pilot working for KLM. He is the top flight instructor for the company and is also featured in their advertisements. Oh, in fact, no. when I saw him, I recognized him. I've seen his picture posted before. We've Can got I first officer. Go, go you no finish finish the two planes. First officer Klaus Mers, flight engineer Willem Schroeder, and then eleven <laughs> flight attendants. Go ahead. All named Barb. Um, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So first of all, do you have to be named Victor in order to fly the Victor yeah, plane? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about the movie Airplane. Airplane. I guess. Wasn't the plane called Victor? Oh, there was Victor Grubbs. Victor Grubbs. Yeah. Is the captain of the Pan Am. I thought that was the Victor. I don't understand. The plane's name was something Victor? Oh, yes. Clipper Victor. Oh, my God. Flown by Victor Grubbs. Yeah. For its final journey. Yikes. Hmm. Conspiracy. We'll be addressing this on Tinfoil Adventure later. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) I thought you were talking about the. You've seen the movie Airplane? Yeah. Like the What's Our Vector? Oh, What's Your Vector? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So both of these planes, their intended destination was the Gran Canaria Airport in the Canary Islands. Mm. However, do you know anything about the Canary Islands? No. It's a, like, autonomous set of islands owned by Spain that are off the coast of Morocco. Because you know how close those are. Oh, yeah. Um, Gibraltar and whatnot. Yeah. 
so this takes place March 27th, 1977. That is 15 months after the death of Francisco Franco. So there's some political upheaval going on in Spain. Things are a little hairy over there. So there's a group called the Canary Island Independence Movement who want to take advantage of this and draw attention to the cause of independence for the Canary Islands. So they plan to detonate two bombs in the Grand Canary Airport. And at one in the afternoon that day, they, the airport receives a call saying there's going to be bombs set off. And just almost immediately after, one of them detonates. Nobody dies, but eight people are injured. So all planes that are supposed to be going there are redirected to the next aisle over from Grand Canaria mm. called Tenerife. Oh. And this is a smaller island with, understandably, a smaller airport. Mm. They were in the process of building a larger one on Tenerife, but at, at this time, it was still under construction, so only the Los Rodeos airport is open. You wouldn't think this would be a mistake, but, you know, this is kind of a hindsight 2020. There are two other islands right next to it that also have airports. Oh, dear God. But they redirected all air traffic to Tenerife. And this airport, pretty small, it is ill-equipped to hold all of the planes that have to go there, specifically 747s. It's not meant to handle 747s (laughs) at all. And they only have... Two runways, but it's technically one. You know, it's just one long strip. I'm going to get a little more into the description. It's a Uh, shame that I'm going to have to describe the layout, but it's really not that complicated, so hopefully (laughs) we'll get through it. Furthermore, not expecting a terrorist attack to happen, there's only two air traffic controllers working at this airport. Oh, no. So you can see we got some mounting problems here. Yeah. Hey, fellas, (laughs) you get time and a half today. Yeah. (laughs) God. To complicate things even further, this airport is at a fairly high altitude in, in, the, in terms of the island itself. And so it is kind of subjected to some strange weather. In this case, on this day, a thick fog. Jesus. I'm going to try to describe the airport. There's one long runway, and then directly parallel to it, is the taxiway that's connected to the terminal. Mm. Connecting these two, there's, on either end of the runway, there's access to the taxiway. And then there's four smaller, like, you know, roads, taxiways, that connect the main taxiway to the runway. Mm. That's pretty much all you need to know. Yeah, that was good. The small connecting bits are Charlie 1, 2, 3, and 4. So they've got all of the planes lined up in the main taxiway. And this KLM flight is very first in line to hit the runway. Uh, Later in that day, just a few hours later, they find the other bomb. And it's like, okay, we're clear. We can open up the airport again. So the Tenerife airport, their tower starts to get things rolling again to redirect the traffic to where it's supposed to go. Now, this KLM flight is first in line. All the other planes are behind it. The Pan Am flight is directly behind it. They all have to wait because the KLM flight decided to completely refuel. 
they had enough to get to Grand Canaria, but they didn't know, you know, they didn't expect it to be like, okay, time to go. Mm. So they figured, well, let's just fuel up. That'll give us enough fuel to get to Grand Canaria and then all the way back to Amsterdam. Mm. And there's also four passengers on the KLM flight that got off to, you know, I don't know, go into the airport. I have and they're to waiting pee. for them to come back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's probably it's probably someone like me that had to go pee. <laughs> and while all of this waiting is happening, the fog is getting thicker and thicker. God. So so dense of fog, in fact, that the tower cannot see the far end of the runway. No. And Big shocker here, Dan. It's where the accident's going to no. happen. So let me explain what the plan was to get these planes out of here. Since the taxiway is completely lodged up with planes, the KLM flight was going to get on the runway, go all the way down the runway just taxiing, turn around, and then take off that way. And while it was in a holding pattern, since the Pan Am can't go around it, the KLM, and not a holding pattern, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that because I think that generally indicates what they're doing when they fly around the airport mm. waiting to land. But just, you know, staging, they're going to sit at the end of the runway. The Pan Am flight is also going to come down the runway, go up one of those connecting channels, and then basically come out behind the KLM flight and just take off right after. Dear God. Just be patient, it, people. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's actually... Like, I'm not exactly spoiling anything, but I'm going to tell you, the blame is pretty much completely on the KOM flight for this disaster. Mm. So what the tower tells the Pan Am flight to do, and they're explaining this whole thing, is to take the third exit way. But there's a little bit of confusion because they can't, they didn't, they couldn't really tell if they said first or third. God. Uh, They get it cleared up, but it's still a little confusing because technically the first one, Charlie one, is closed, like completely. So they didn't know, like, they, 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 they know third. Does that mean the third one, Charlie three, or the third one that's open, Charlie ah. four? Now, what the towers, since this airport is not equipped for 747s, what the ATCs did not anticipate was that the angle that Charlie three is at would have been an impossible turn for a 747 to make. Well, and, and regardless... The fog was so thick that the Pan Am flight didn't even see Charlie 3, and they decided to just go on Charlie 4. It was a much more, it was actually like, basically they wouldn't have to turn more than 90 degrees Uh-oh. on Charlie 4. It would ju- It's just like a 45-degree turn. Okay. So I'm picturing these Charlies as sort of like a sunburst. Like the middle like, one is 90, and then maybe. Yeah, pretty much. But then. Because then Charlie the 1, one is, would have been like a 45, like a bad 45 charlie one charlie one is direct 90 oh okay charlie two is a little bit more than that three is a little bit more but then four is like the completely yeah the opposite real oblong okay god (laughs) oh no dude i'm sweating so while this uh the klm flight gets to the end of the runway it's parked there and just pretty much immediately Van Zanten turns on the engines. And the first officer is like, whoa, fucking chill, dude. (laughs) Like, we got to wait until the Pan Am flight is clear. So now I'm going to read this transcript. This is taken from the tower logs and then the black boxes. And I might have to, like, 
cut in and explain some things, but mm-hmm. this is basically 5.05, 17.05, so 5.05 in the evening, and this is when KLM first officer says, wait a minute, we don't have ATC clearance. Captain says, no, I know that. Go ahead, ask. So first officer says, the KLM 4805 is now ready for takeoff, and we are waiting for our ATC clearance. Tower says, KLM 8705, you are, and he got the number wrong, but that is what he said. Mm. You are clear to the Papa Beacon. Climb to and maintain flight level 90. Right turn after takeoff. Proceed with heading 40 until intercepting the 325 radial from Las Palmas VOR. So the tower said go? Yes, because they can't see the runway. They don't know that Pan Am isn't clear yet. Uh. KLM captain says yes. And then inner cabin communication. Uh, Roger, sir, we are cleared to the Papa Beacon flight level 90. Right turn out 040 until intercepting the 325. We are now at takeoff or uh, taking off. That's a direct quote. Because if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, if you are flying, like the, the language of flight is English, I'm pretty sure. Uh. All pilots and towers speak in English all over the world. So there is some confusion with um, <laughs> some of this is translated when it's like inter. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes they're going to screw up their English a little bit, maybe. The tenses are real tricky. Right. So at 1706 and 11 seconds, the KLM releases its brakes. And the KLM, KLM captain says, we gone. <laughs> Check thrust. And that's we're going in uh, whatever <laughs> Dutch or whatever screwed up language they speak in Amsterdam. <laughs> And, and the engine acceleration is audible in the KLM cockpit. Tenerife Tower says, okay, stand by for takeoff. I will call you. But only part of this message could be heard clearly by the uh, KLM route due to a radio issue. And this is when the Pan Am captain comes in and says, no, uh, we're, we're still taxiing down the runway. Uh, the Clipper, 1736. But this message is also not no. completely heard. Is that because of the Tenerife fog, Tower. you think? You know, let me look up what this term means because it says radio heterodyne. Okay. <laughs> the heterodyne is the production of a lower frequency from the combination of two almost equal high frequencies as used in radio transmissions. So I guess the radios were communicating at too similar of a frequency and it was causing a lower frequency that oh. screwed everything up. Seems like something that shouldn't be a problem. Yeah. Um, what do I know? I don't really know how it works, but... If that happens, like, every day, you know. So Tenerife Tower comes back and says, Ah, Papa Alpha 1763, report the runway clear. And Pan Am says, Okay, we will report when we're clear. Tenerife Tower says, Thank you. And this is the last radio communication involving the two aircraft with the tower. Yeah. Everything that from this point on is intra-cockpit communication amongst the respective crews. So the Pan Am captain says, let's get the hell out of here. Yeah. First officer says, yeah, he's anxious, isn't he? Flight engineer says, yeah, after he held us up for half an hour, that bleep, now he's in a rush. <laughs> I'm just going to, I'm not going to try to speak the Dutch. I'm just going to say the translation, obviously. Okay. KLM flight engineer, is he not clear then? KLM captain, what do you say? KLM unknown. Yep. Oh, no. <laughs> KLM flight engineer, is he not clear, that Pan American? KLM captain says, oh, yes. 
and uh, five seconds later, because at this point, when the, when he's asking, is he not clear? They have already started taking no. off. No. And Pan Am is still on the runway. So five seconds after he says, oh, yes, he sees the, or the Pan Am captain sees the KLM's landing lights approximately 700 meters away. Pan Am captain says, there he is. Look at him. God damn, that son of a bitch is coming. Jeez. Pan Am first officer says, get off, get off, get off. And this is when the Pan Am starts to, they just go full throttle and try to get on the exit way. Yeah, they're going to the well, probably going for the grass at this point. Jeez, yeah. man. And at the same time, the KLM sees it, because this is now, we're down to the oh yes and explosion are 15 seconds apart. Jeez. So we're now in, in seconds. And the KLM sees the landing lights of the Pan Am, and they try to pull up real hard, so hard that the tail scrapes against the runway. They can't take off because they're too heavy because of all the extra fuel. And so uh, they, get off, they get off the ground by just a few feet and straight through the Pan Am flight. God. Just cut right through it. But that is, even though they just went straight through the fuselage of the Pan Am, KLM flight, it bumps it up a little bit in the air and then it comes crashing back down on the runway and explodes. God. Everybody on the KLM flight dies. The Pan Am flight crew and, well, whatever. So, let's see, there's... Oh, I guess that's just the flight crew. So the three people on the Pan Am flight are four, and then 55 passengers or flight attendants, 61 total survivors, but 335 of the 396 total occupants of the Pan Am flight passed away. The fog is so intense that the tower could not even see the explosion. An airplane in the air had to report the smoke and flames, and it took over 20 minutes for the fire crew to arrive with the Pan Am flight burning the whole time. God. Now, investigations afterward pretty much cleared up that Van Zanten is almost single-handedly responsible for this. Right. And it was very confusing because, like I said at the top, he is the single most experienced pilot in the company. Yeah. And the top flight instructor. Oh, yeah. So nobody's really sure why he was in such a rush to get out of there, especially with conditions like that. Like, how could you be so brazen right. when you have to operate off instruments alone, basically? Yeah, like, there's uh, there's no even, like, reasonable speculation. It's just, right. like, momentary insanity. God. Because can you imagine if, like, you know, most experienced pilot, you know, head flight instructor, whatever his position was, and, like, a young pilot was like, all right, let's go, release the brakes, you know, yeah. and he was next to him, like, still doing training or whatever. God. So I do, I there are some, leg, some I, you know, it would be under the legacy tab on Wikipedia, but things mm. that happened as a result. This is actually what kind of solidified using English as the common working language and also introduced requirements for standard phrases. And it it made it, you can't just say like, okay, mm. or even Roger as an affirmative. Roger simply means the last transmission was received. 
So you couldn't use okay or Roger as like a yes. Oh, that's good. But yeah, you had to read back key parts of the instruction told you, told to you to show mutual understanding is something that they introduced after that. So I did misunderstand one thing, uh, not a major thing, but you said that after this, English was pretty much demanded as the one language to use during flying. So that was not the case before this. I think it it might have just been like as a as a sake of out of ease. It was like most places used English, but I think it said it, what it said basically was it put a much greater emphasis on English as a common working language among oh. professionals. So God, it might not even be you know I I can't imagine like domestic flights in domestic airports in like China. Yeah. Like, would they really be speaking English? I don't know the answer to that, but it seems crazy to me that they right. would do that. Yeah. That's Bummer. terrifying, 500 man. And 583 total fatalities. Yeah. Just, oh, God. And just, like, the thought of, like, a whole plane exploding, you know? Oh, my God, I know. A 747. Right. It's one of the biggest ones. Yeah. I. That's, I mean, obviously airline disasters garner a lot of attention and obviously we are aware that like airline disasters and accidents are very few and far in between like statistically you know you're more safe to fly right. blah 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 but like i'm so glad <laughs> or yeah. at least don't want to know if if this is a if this isn't true that like the airline industry or at least like the aviation industry just doesn't mess around when it comes to like borders or politics or like profit necessarily. Like if there is a crucial aviation regulation to be made, it I it feels like it seems like everybody signs on, yeah. Because you don't have a choice, probably. <clears throat> like like yeah, the I wonder if response thing, you know, as an example. Yeah, you know, I if you're if... flying, I'm sorry, I keep it's like if you're flying, you know, Greenland to Canada or whatever, and you try getting away with a yep, okay, got it. You know, somebody's probably right. going to be like. <clears throat> Yeah, you might even get fined, you know? Yeah. Well, and, like, I wonder if if there is some sort of overarching body. Mm. The damage you could do by having the power to, like, if a certain country didn't want to accept something, just being like, okay, well, no more flights to your country. Yeah. While a plane in is in the air. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Be like the movie Terminal, but in the air. <laughs> yeah. So thankful for that one. Well, obviously, it fit well with the theme, the series of unfortunate events. Rube yeah, mounting things that really <laughs> caused disaster. But then to just seal the deal with one man's stupid decision. Yeah. I think that added a whole other level. Oh, and that's right. One other uh, change at least in the American side of things, was less of a focus on the hierarchy in the cockpit. Mm. You know, so it wasn't like 
the captain could unilaterally make decisions. It was moved to a more team-oriented, like, okay, we are piloting this plane. Damn. Yeah, that seems good, too. Yeah. What do you think? Closing thoughts? I just... I mean, we talked about your transcript brought it up, and, and we brought it up for my story, but just, like, what... Go, what goes through the mind of somebody as they watch in real time their stupidity or mistake mm-hmm. cause massive damage, right? I'm yeah. talking Van Zan or whatever his name is. Van Zanten, yeah. Van Zanten and then, you know, the bridge operators running right. back from the bar. <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> being faced with especially in the case of van Zanten, like seeing the landing lights of the yeah. pan am flight and knowing that you do not have enough time to get out of the way yeah oh van Zanten. <laughs> wait a second i thought van Zanten was in the klm yes well in, i mean in both cases oh, i just yeah, yeah, we yeah. were talking about van Zanten. like gotcha. just knowing that you're like oh god yeah this is not, we are, we, this is a heavy, heavy thing we're driving and it's not going to move quickly. Yeah. God. <clears throat> Especially just at taxiing speeds. Like, right. Yeah. I wonder what it would have happened if they did clear it. Like it probably still might've been pretty bad. You know, if yeah. like, I'm just saying, Dude, I'd want to some... take like six months off if I was either of those <laughs> flight crews, like after that. Just if I was a passenger on that okay. ship, I'd call my boss and be like, listen, I have to ship my <laughs> yeah. pants for the next six months. I'm not going to be in. Okay, well, I think I think the next episode that comes out <laughs> should be the Andrew Carnegie episode. Yeah. Almost not even worth saying at this point. Right. Because who knows? Yeah. Who knows? C- could be another tinfoil. <laughs> could be me doing a solo episode. Who yeah. knows what's going to happen here? You know what is worth saying? Follow us on Instagram at armchair underscore adventurer underscore podcast. I think. Right. I think. (laughs) I got got a new phone, so I'm not logged into it anymore. Paul is the only one logged in. Oh, boy. I also, I don't even think, and I wish we did, I don't think we've gotten a single review so I really, we have no good sense of feedback. With yeah. that said, if you leave anything less than a five-star review, yeah, fuck you. Yeah, one, we're going to know who you are because <clears throat> that's all who listens to the show are people that we know. And two, yeah. <laughs> there are, never mind, I'm not going to say it while we're recording, but you get the idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well. Leave a review. Yep. <laughs>